You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Things ended. They had to, moving toward termination from the moment they started. And when friendships, when relationships, when people were involved, it was a Lestat's experience that things ended badly. You woke up one morning and found out that your unrequited love had rifled through your pack and taken all your valuables and disappeared without so much as a goodbye note. You discovered that your pool hustling compadre was a profligate tweaker, and when he got wired on crystal meth, he picked fights and attacked you with a pool cue. You traveled in the same circles as an irritating and crazy and completely enchanting pregnant girl, and as much as you wanted to save something, to take care of someone, nothing you did could stop her from destroying herself, from retarding or destroying the life inside of her. You couldn't stop her any more than you'd been able to stop another unrequited love from toting her wares under and on the Fritz street lamp and, late one night, getting into the wrong car any more than you could stop any number of friends from accidentally filling a main vein with some bad shit, any more than you could do anything about your own disintegration, your own destruction. The void was no longer foreign, no longer a fresh sensation, but constant, second nature to the point of becoming unnoticed in their lives, the access for all their comings and goings. Lincoln still returned home each night, It was a matter of personal pride, but he often stumbled in around or past midnight with one or two drinks under his belt. For her part, Lorraine was gone with the dawn, out at yoga or at the local coffee nook, poring over her notebooks and papers, throwing herself into the project of raising money for the child search. Their daily lives were almost wholly separate now, and even when they found themselves under the same roof, the house had more than enough space and freedom for each. And though the air between them was stale, without the slightest charge or energy, the signs of effort and consideration were still there, numerous if you wanted to see them. Lincoln made sure to pick up towels and keep things neat in his bathroom. He clipped articles he thought would interest Lorraine, leaving them on the kitchen table or emailing her the links. Lorraine returned the consideration, taking care of his dry cleaning, making sure the fridge was stocked with his favorite comfort foods. And they ran into each other, obviously. They had to, on the stairs or when the television was on and each happened to be nearby. Thankfully, their exchanges featured little drama or strain. Lorraine might ask with the utmost sympathy about the extra pounds that the cut of Lincoln's suit could not hide. Lincoln might walk behind her, put his hands on her shoulders, and try to to massage away some of her tension. They'd talk about small things, payment schedules for the pool cleaners, or someone wanted to pass on a greeting. Now and then, Lincoln and Lorraine even managed the courage to look into each other's eyes. Sustaining their gazes, they transcend their fragile truce, moving beyond the polite banter of all the responsibilities expected of each of them, beyond the toil necessary to fulfill those responsibilities and the exhaustion they felt through their bones. 
Holding the marriage together took so much time and energy. Keeping things from not getting any worse took every bit of emotional strength either one of them had. And more than that. But Lincoln and Lorraine would look into each other's eyes, and all of the pain and the wear and the fear would be there. All the stuff there were no words for, the stuff they just felt, which made them keep looking, afraid to blink, even as they knew someone had to. Something had to happen. Charles Bach was born in Las Vegas, Nevada, and has an MFA from Bennington College. His first novel is Beautiful Children. Thank you for speaking with me, Charles. It's a pleasure, Rick. And uh, hello, everyone out there in Listenerville. I hope this is going to be as fun for you as it is for me and Rick. We're, we're naked already in preparation for this baby. <laughs> Charles, this novel has gives us a picture of a Las Vegas that we don't see much of. Uh, yeah, I guess it does. Um, I was born in Las Vegas, Rick, and uh, I lived there till I was 18 years old. My parents, uh, they are the pawnbrokers in downtown Las Vegas, and uh, my mother's father was a pawnbroker. And now I have two brothers who also are in that business, so that's three generations. And I think living there, growing up there, there would be things that I saw and absorbed that when it came time to to write and when it came time to kind of unpack my head and figure out how or what were my subjects, um this this was something that i had to get through before i could pro- before i'd be able to do anything else yeah yeah one of the things that that, that i found really uh, fascinating about this book was as we we see this vegas it, it's a vegas where there there's no there there it, it, it's a it's a, a hollow place not not hollow it's a stack of empty two-dimensional images, and we see a lot of two-dimensional images in this book. Well, hopefully the characters aren't two-dimensional. <laughs> um, hopefully they're pretty good and real. Um, but one thing that's amazing about Las Vegas as a city is that... Uh, I have to back unpack this a little bit. It was founded originally by Mormon settlers. In uh, Eventually, gambling was legalized there, but it wasn't until really with Bugsy Siegel and the, the, you know, the movie Bugsy and the, the mob kind of really establishing Vegas and post, uh, you know, right around World War II, that that, that Vegas as we know it was born. For it, the city itself to exist, you need to have trucks bring food in. You need to have air conditioning because it's not natural to the place. You need to have water from a dam from somewhere else because there's no natural water source. For that city to function and to work, everything has to be brought. And on top of that, I think you take that idea with a combination of gambling and the idea of you're going to come here so you can win our money. That's why we want you to come here so you can take things from much, which is a us, which is the casinos kind of 
the seductive siren's call, and which we all know is not true, that those those create certain kind of vacuums, I believe. And the city is, now it's 50 years, it's half a century since then, but certain things are built, in, I, I think, into the infrastructure. And now, you know, service and entertainment supposedly brings in f- more revenue than gaming does. But there is a, I do think there's, there's something to that idea of two-dimensionality. There's nothing organic. And you find that in that the hotels are, are replicas, that the streets are littered with, with uh, franchises and chains. And in some ways, it's wonderful because the city itself has become this its own organic creation. All the replicas have created something that in some ways is the larger sum of its parts. But um, for a very long time, and I, I believe it's in, in music and maybe with my book and maybe with some other people, some organic things are starting to come out of Las Vegas for the first time, and that's pretty exciting as well. But my book, I had a, I made the conscious choice to kind of portray the um, the pop culture apotheosis part side of Las Vegas, and the people who I'm sorry to continue for a moment, and the people who keep it running, and the people who keep it working. Now, you told me that you lived for 18 years in, in Las Vegas, and yes. you're the the third generation of pawnbrokers. You left Las Vegas. Why? Yeah. Uh, I left to go to school. Um, I got, got into college, and I wanted to go away to college. I had a sister who also did the same. My, both of my brothers have advanced degrees. They both went away to school. Um, and they came back. My sister is still in New York City. Um, but I had to find myself as a person. And uh, for me, I had a very long stretch of time, I would say, into my mid-20s and maybe even into my later 20s where that was really, um, where that took place. And it was a long stretch where I had to find myself, I guess, as a first as a uh, adult and maybe as a man and certainly as a writer and that couldn't, that just didn't, It not that it couldn't, but it just didn't take place in Las Vegas. When did you first acquire an, an interest in writing? Did you, I mean, many writers start when they're young and they're, you know, as young as, when they, as soon as they can write. Was that you? Oh, uh, it's hard to answer this. My mother read to me when I was just very small. And when I was a little kid, I was a reading demon. Encyclopedia Brown, uh, anything I could get my hands on, I was voracious. 12, 13 comic books, I was, I loved comic books and just ate them up, couldn't get enough of them. But at the same time, I was also a pretty lost and unhappy kid. And if a teacher said, read a book in high school, I read the first half of it three days before the essay was due, the second half two days before it was due, and then the night before the essay was due, I wrote, you know, a f- first draft of the essay. I wasn't a big reader in high school, but I did get involved, like, with a synagogue group where I was a secretary, and I would just make stuff up. The The minutes of the meeting I would make up, and I would turn into little stories. Uh, I had a huge imagination when and when I used to play with my Star Wars figures or 
or army men or whatever, I, I created universes. So uh, even when I would try and play baseball alone in my backyard, I would create whole leagues. So I've always had this huge imagination. And um, later, I became serious about writing in the sense of, oh, I'm going to be a writer. But I was, I think, as a young, as a child, and then as a teenager, it was still, it was still there. It was just not something that I necessarily acknowledged. I hope that makes sense. Oh no, it makes perfect sense. Tell tell me about your uh, college years. Did you, when you went to college, did you say I'm going to be a writer and major in English? Uh, no. <laughs> No, I'm not going to make this easy for you, Rick. No, oh, I'm good. not. Um, uh, I, I did journalism. I took a journalism class my freshman year. And for a while, I thought I was going to be a journalist. And even in college, I had some internships that were pretty good. And Where? Uh, uh, Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, I had a summer internship at the Herald Leader. I also, my senior year of college, I did one semester as a L.A. Times intern. Um, so I really thought that maybe that was a future for me. I had a very hard time getting hired out of out of school. That was early 90s, and the newspaper industry was like so many industries, and that was contracting wildly and consolidating. Um, eventually, after maybe a year and a half of selling clothes in a rock clothing store in Los Los Angeles um I got a job and I spent 2 years in in Mississippi uh for the, writing for the Bloxy Sun Herald and during the years when I was selling clothes and the years when I was living down south that's I I actually tried to write my a first novel then before even as I was discovering first re, uh reading seriously and as I was discovering the pa- the amazing and kind of wonderful power of of really good books um that that was simultaneously happening and uh that was a pretty it was a wonderful wonderful time in certain ways because i was writing at night i was reading and i had this job in the in you know the southern us in louisiana it took me to new orleans a fair amount that was also just wild and I was writing tons, you know, they get every every cent they, you know, uh, uh, they work, young reporters uh, earn their salary about five times. And so I, but I was doing tons of writing, just tons and tons of writing. And it was this um, just crash course in what, what I might be able of, of just doing work, doing lots and lots of work. Well, what books inspired you to, to, to pursue this, re- this reading and writing career? You, you talk oh, about know. great novels. So, I mean, y- you're interest, really interested in the literary novel. So what, what literary novels just drove you wild? It's interesting. When I was figuring it out, I think probably I was in, got interested in the same stuff that everyone gets interested in, you know, the kind of almost reading 101, uh, Fitzgerald and... And uh, I, I had a phase where I just thought uh, Truman Capote wrote some of the most gorgeous sentences I could ever imagine. And even in grad school, I wrote a 10-page paper once uh, breaking down one of his paragraphs, all about one paragraph. 
as I've grown and as I think I got my bearings a little more, you know, um, I have a big, big uh, thing for post-World War II fiction and really, like, you know, the Pynchon, DeLillo, David Foster Wallace, Rick Moody, William Volman, Dennis Johnson, kind of the the big guns of the two generations before me just turn me on my ear and just, you know, send my heart soaring, those authors. Uh, you know, actually, I want to ratchet back a little bit and, and ask you about your, your reading of comic books now. Oh, uh, sure. What, what, what comic books were you reading when you were a teenager that, that you, you thought were the bee's knees? Well, uh, the bee's knees. Uh, the death of Phoenix in the X-Men series was the bee's knees. The Sentinels in uh, uh, that same X-Men series. I had a phase where there was a character named Wolverine, and now he's famous from the movies because of the claws in his hands, and he at a time was fighting ninjas. And I had a phase where I used to try and do nunchucks and throw throwing stars because I just wanted to be like the people in the comic books. Daredevil was... The, there was a phase of Daredevil where it was really great when it was done by uh, Frank Miller and uh, the Daredevil Bullseye Electra kind of that trilogy was um, a big deal in my life for a little while. Uh, Fantastic Four written by uh, or drawn by John Byrne. I think, you know, in the early 80s, I guess it would be, there was a series of comics that it seems that now a lot of writers my age read and had an influence on on a number of us and it's kind of wonderful and it's also kind of annoying too because you think it's yours and then here comes this person you know with all the same references you know uh, Colson Whitehead references a minor daredevil character in uh in his first novel and you know I remember seeing that and thinking oh yeah yeah all right but and of course, it's a wonderful novel, and he's a fine, fine writer. But things like that are interesting to know. Yeah, same, same club. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you said you wrote a first novel. What? What? No one will ever see it. Now, no, don't even. Yeah, no, you'll die before you see it. I'll die. You'll die. There'll be blood on the streets before that thing ever gets seen. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm one of those people who's certainly always waiting for the next apocalypse. So, uh, good. But uh, <laughs> yeah. could could you tell me what made you decide that you were going to write a novel? Had you written short stories before you decided embarked upon no. this doomed novel, or just said novel no, time? I th- That's me. I I had no idea what I was doing, and uh, I think you know I was not I was living in Los Angeles, blowing my brains out. Um, you know, selling clothes at a rock clothing store, just going nowhere really fast. And it just seemed, you know, for all I know, someone gave me the advice in a party, you should write a novel. And so I wrote a novel before I'd ever read one, you know, or tr- started writing one before I ever read one. Then when I went to grad school to a, a Bennington MFA program, I talked to my first advisor, and I kind of was telling him my story, and I started talking about this doomed novel of mine and he kind of laughed and he said uh, yeah we all have that in our drawer and uh, it made me feel a lot you know a lot better um, because a lot of us do and then a lot of us do yeah 
Now, once you you went through a Bennington MFA program, and that's presumably where you started really taking your writing seriously, and you were all, at this point, you were uh, well had a bunch of Fitzgerald, et cetera, under your belt. Right, 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 right. I think, yeah, I think getting to graduate school, I moved to New York because I wanted to be a writer. I was, I think, 24, 25, and I even applied for a writing workshop at the new school, the advanced fiction workshop, and they didn't let me in. And it was a huge blow to my ego. And I remember, I can still remember walking down the street on Fifth Avenue, leaving the new school uh, after learning this and kind of thinking to my, and learning I would have to take the intro to fiction workshop and kind of thinking, boy, I spent all that time and I, I should be better than this and et cetera, et cetera. And also thinking, well, here's a point where I can either curse the world and the world's corrupt and it's all fixed against me and it's all so unfair and I can go and be bitter and 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 cry in my milk or I could take the fiction workshop and I could learn what I'm supposed to do and um, I took the fiction workshop and when I and that I working on that helped me write the essay the short story that I think got me into grad school and in grad school, I continue. I think most of my grad school experience was writing short stories, learning how to write short stories. Yeah. Tell me about the story that got you into grad school. What was it about, and what compelled you to to write it? Oh, uh, that's a good question. I think it was about. I'm thinking, it was about a a guy who's sick and in a hospital and his family comes to visit him and they're waiting to find out what his diagnosis is and what compelled me to write it I think was something some sort of existential crisis you know some kind of Beckettian some it was a be- well, like maybe a Beckett something maybe waiting for Godot for all I know um, but some sort of existential ideas compelled me to try and do that short story and that got me in and yeah thank goodness for that and the first version of it was really absurd and it had a lot of absurdist humor um and it was horrible and in the workshop they they told me look you've got to lose all these jokes and write a serious story and um i lost probably half of them and uh thank goodness i did well, now you're in grad school. Let's talk a little bit about writing short stories in grad school. Did was that how did that experience? Did those stories get published? Um, how did that get you going in writing? I mean, did you enjoy writing short stories? Um, I that's a good question. I think I have put tremendous pressure on myself. I don't think that I had as good of a time in grad school as I should have. I don't think I even learned everything I should have because I was so concerned with trying to be published. It was really, I, I, for some reason, I wanted to be, pu- I mean, everyone does. You go to graduate school for an MFA because you want to be a published writer. And I wanted to write my stories and have them published and have the world love me and you know, have a parade for me down the street. And that was, and that compelled me, propelled me a bit. I wrote a series of short stories in graduate school. Some were very ambitious. 
a lot of them were tons and tons of language overwritten with language two and it did end up being published in small in small places and tour and um each one of those was flawed but but a pretty good story one was one took place in russia and was written from the point of view of a young russian kid whose best friend runs away from home and another took place in the new york city research library and was about a holocaust survivor who mistook a young man who was wearing all black and who was actually an intern for a fashion magazine. The uh, old Holocaust survivor mistook him for a uh, a member of the uh, a young Orthodox man, a young Orthodox Jew, and asked him to help him find something in the library. Um, those were the two stories that ended up being printed, but um, and they're they're fine. Uh, Tell me a little bit about as you when once you've got yourself in in grad school here uh did you start you'd already written one novel which you buried in the backyard yeah but that doesn't even <laughs> yeah barely even counts that you know, I don't even know if it counts you know that was almost like learning what trying to learn what goes where when you have you know trying to it's like trying to build a car out of tissue paper does it really count does that really, you know, it's just a crazy effort. But anyway. That's a wonderful description. <laughs> One of my other writers described trying to write a novel as try, like trying to build a house out of raisins. Yeah, this yeah. <laughs> I mean, especially you just, when you're so young, you know, you're, and meanwhile, some wonderful, amazing, you know, genius type young men have written some really superb novels before their 25th, 26th birthday. Uh, Fitzgerald, obviously. David Foster Wallace wrote um, Broom in the System and Jonathan Foer, Everything is Illuminated. Those are off the top of my head. Those are amazing, amazingly talented guys. Most of us, though, you know, we weren't given all the same toys in the playpen, in the mental playpen. You know, they have some special toys that that certainly I didn't have. All my toys were broken. So, uh, what I came up with was a young man learning about language, trying to figure things out, and trying to figure out just how to write. And it was a great exercise in between that and probably graduate school and just some maturing that I had to do as a person. I emerged probably 26, 27, starting to take this on and... um and even then, I wasn't ready for the novel that I was trying to write. I had to grow as a writer and, and really as a person to be good enough to try and write, you know, to write the book that um, that now we're talking, you know, we'll eventually be talking about. Yeah. You, it's interesting to me that you say you had to grow a, a, as a person to, to, to write this book. What kind of changes... Growth did you have to undergo to to be ready to write this novel, and when did you decide to start writing this novel? This novel started as a short story in when I was in my last year at Benning at the Bennington Writing Seminars, and in fact, some diligent person could go into the Bennington Library where they have every single student's uh, graduate thesis 
and find the like 12 to 15 pages that were in fact the genesis of this of this book and they will find a huge mess they will find just just a comic mess about something that's just, then that's an answer to how far away I was from writing this but the detail work there were so many details that I was packing on and packing on and every the pace was so fast that it was unreadable and first I had to but something was there and so I decided to try and slow it down and expand on these details and unpack them and start to and that made it bigger and start to work with characters and start to work with uh the ideas that I was just throwing and do, writing so fast. And and I think the first draft that I wrote, which took me two to three years, was really self-conscious in terms of style. It was very showy. It was very look at me. And it was also just seething with anger. Um, I don't, I think one thing I had to learn was you have to love the people you're writing about, no matter how flawed they are. And you have to accept uh, flaws in your characters, in yourself, in the world around you. And a, a novel, in the course of telling a story, you may make certain judgments, but narrative, your narrative voice can't be overbearing. And in the process, you know, obviously I, I'm someone who maybe has some... St- opinions about had some opinions about the commercialization of the world and all kinds of normal things that any sensitive young person in their 20s has you know about the world around them and I had to learn to not be judgmental and to um, try and see things from inside flawed uh, hurt people who are maybe going in the wrong direction but might be doing it for the best reasons they can and uh, have the, you know, are doing the best they can through each step. And that's just, I think, I think you know, late, tw- late 20s, early 30s, that's a process a lot of artists or people who would be artists um, go through. And with me, I just happened to go through it while writing and rewriting and also trying to figure out the structure of a book that honestly when I started out was too ambitious for the skills that I had. I had to grow into the structural understanding of a big book and the character depths that are required for a big book to be able to take them on. I hope that answers it. Uh, uh, oh, that's yeah. that, That's great. I, I want to ask you, two to three years to do a first draft, that's a, a long time. And what were you doing during those two to three years when you weren't writing? If if this wasn't paying the bills, what was? Oh, I was. Um, you know, it didn't pay the bills, and I had all the bad. I had lots of bad jobs in New York City. Um, I had some nice jobs. I had a wonderful. There was a wonderful jazz critic named Gary Giddens, and I was his research assistant for a, two of his books. A man named Gene Santoro wrote a, bi- wrote a biography of Charles Mingus, and. For a while, I support. I partially supported myself by transcribing all the interview tapes for that, and so I would listen and learn about the history of jazz, or the you know about jazz in New York in uh, uh, second half of the twentieth century of America. That explains um, the name of your comic book artist. 
Yes, it does for Gary <laughs> Giddens. Uh, his Bing, um, his Bing Crosby biography. I was, you know, also Bing Crosby was inf- was influenced by uh, uh, Bix Biderbix, and I combined the two of them, and with the idea that if if Gary ever read the book, if I ever published it and Gary ever read it, he would know that that was a tip of the hat to him. But yes, um, third shift legal proofreader for a couple of years. Uh, ten, sometimes friends who had worked in offices would get me temp work. Um, I did some ghost writing work. I did some ghost editing work. I, the last year, um, the last final year of the book where I had to rewrite it, the final, final draft, um, I worked part-time at a supermarket tabloid as a rewrite man um, on the Monday and Friday deadline days for the tabloid where they have to, where they kind of all, you know, all the sausages have to be made. And I was one of the sausage makers, as it were. Uh, You know, just, I never had any money. I never, you know, I never, I didn't buy new stuff. I, uh, I, I really lived, you know, I was, I don't know, I really lived, um, as cheaply as I could, and I bought all my books, you know, secondhand or from discount places, you know, for new books. I, you know, I just scraped and did the best that I could. Um, and but collecting time to be able to write was more important to me than really anything, almost anything else. Um, certainly than any professional aspirations or, uh, you know, and the whole time my parents were kind of worried and wondering, geez, don't you want to go to graduate school? Maybe you could go to law school, you know, something, because, you know, they'd see me come home just undernourished and with these, you know, t-shirts and, and, and dirty, messed up jeans that, and, you know, they would, when I got new clothes, it was because my mom would take me, you know, usually and we'd go to an outlet, outlet mall in Las Vegas and get some more clothes, um, especially during the last five years of it. Uh, that was especially true. Did your parents know you were working on one enormous novel that, I, yeah. I mean, that's, that's an eggs-in-one-basket experience there. Oh, I had written myself into a corner, unbelievably, and they knew it, and... I, you know, I never let them read it. I never showed them anything. I think maybe nine years in, I showed my dad one specific section that I um, that was kind of a tribute to him. Uh, but I really kept it close, close, close to my vest, and they were completely aware. And considering the business they're in, they're all too aware also that noble dreams fail, and. Um, they were rightly worried about me. Um, you know, my parents are two people who both had artistic ambitions. My dad wanted to be a writer. My mother wanted to be an actress. Uh, they worked for 30 years in a pawn shop in downtown Las Vegas, and they did it to support, to make sure that their children were educated and that their children had a good life. And in that way, you know, they're complete, utter heroes. They're just the definition of... of, of, of people who sacrifice. They're not people who buy things for themselves or or want things for themselves. They just wanted success for their children. And so it was, a, a, I think it was especially hard for them to see 
that it wasn't happening for me. <laughs> it wasn't happening in a huge, huge way, you know? So, yeah. So it's it's also, I think, I think they're also getting a huge, you know, no one knows what to do about the fact that it is actually published and it's getting such wonderful responses in the world. It's just like, who knew, you know, who knew the world worked in this direction too? Which So I think they're pretty thrilled about it. Yeah. When you're doing it, what you're writing in is the great American novel genre. <laughs> and, right. and this is a kind of a, an ambitious thing to do for your first uh for your first try, why did you select a, a, a great American novel? Um, that's an interesting question, uh, you know, and I haven't heard it before, so <laughs> that's it's good that you asked it. Um, I didn't know I was setting out to write a great American novel, or maybe I wasn't completely aware of it. Uh, I do know that in the early mid '90s, there were a number of superb. Uh, writers a generation ahead of me who were putting out great books and that inspired me and it made me come up with a structure for something in a huge tale and by the time I knew I was in uh, over my head it was too far to go back it was either you put it in a drawer and years and years of work are gone or you figure this out and uh, one of my favorite one of my favorite singers in the world, probably my favorite singer in the world, is a guy named Axl Rose from a little band called Guns N' Roses. He has a tattoo on one of his shoulders that says victory or death. And at a certain point, you know, <laughs> that's just how it goes. <laughs> it's just, I'm in it. I, I got, it's not like I have a really good job in advertising to fall back on. And, uh, this is what I have, so I I got to figure it out. And you know, it it was a huge amount of pressure, and each year it became more and more pressure. And for there were times where I would get really down about it, and times where I was probably a demon to deal with. But um, yeah, you know, I didn't know what I was getting into. There's just no way to know what you're getting into. It, this novel is it. It's a big novel about Las Vegas, and you've got 10 characters. And one of the things I love about this book, and you kind of touched on this earlier, was that these characters range from just completely scabrous, kind of scummy-type people. If you, you might, That's what you might think if you were to meet them on the street, or you might like try to cross the street to avoid most of them. Right, right. Um, but you, it's true. You, as the as the writer, and it's clear to us because we, as the readers, come to love all of these ten characters. So I, I'd like you to talk to me about how, how when you're dealing with somebody like, let's say, Pony Boy. T- tell me about creating Pony Boy. When did he come up in the in your? When did he first appear to you in the novel? How did you discover these characters? I, you know, you you discover them in stages. A Pony Boy was just. You'd be amazed how fun it is to write Pony Boy and how heartbreaking it can be to, you know, because he is a heartbreaking character. Um, the idea of knowing, um, there, there's a Pynchon novel, Vineland, where the cop in it, um, whose last name is Bach or Brock, um, he is a total, complete, bad A.S. dash. And uh, 
every time he appears in the novel, it's just like, oh man, this guy's going to do damage. You know, he just, he just kills it, kills through it. And you just, you're scared to death of him and scared to death what he's going to do. And, you know, the woman in it is in love with him. You know, the mother that the protagonist kind of loves is in love with him. And it, and it's just terrible. It's just a, just a hard thing to read through. And I loved it. I just love that idea. And I love, you know, it's when I was coming up with the idea of the character and for a teen runaway who would just be, you know, hell on wheels, you know, it seemed like the funniest thing I could, you know, the evilest, funniest joke was to call him Pony Boy after uh, S.E. Hinton's wonderful, beautiful boy in The Outsiders. Like, I can't tell you how much, how the, the amount of uh, deep, dark humor I got out of that. And... And yet, it can't be just be one thing. Somewhere, it's a broken life. And if he's out on the street, shouldn't shouldn't you someone care for that? Shouldn't someone care about that in any way, shape, or form? And if I'm the author, and this is my creation, I have to care, and I have to give it the attention that any decent human being would give. And so. It creates a complexity, um, and the more you write, the more you respect that complexity. I I believe, and and with each rewrite, you find new twists and new different little moments, because he ultimately is, I believe, a tragic, tragic character. Um, he ultimately is dooming, going to doom himself. He's going to doom everyone around him. People are going to believe, you know, women are going to want to believe in him and he's going to take them to places that are horrible. And and at the same time, you know, a lot of people really, early drafts of him, he was just completely, utterly despicable. And I knew that that wasn't right. And so I kept trying to work with it and trying to go deeper and do more. And, uh, you know, I... Jonathan Franzen in the corrections, one of my favorite sections of that book is called The More He Thought About It, The Matter He Got, which is about the investment banker guy and his, uh, you know, the barbecue section where he's, and he's a thoroughly reprehensible character and you just love him and you just, you know, your heart goes out to him at the end of that. If you're, if you're reading pretty close, you realize just what an accomplishment that is. And that was something that I tried to replicate in my own twisted, demented way. As Las Vegas novels go, I, I can't claim to have read many. Uh, this one has a, 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 a real deficit of gambling, and, and yeah, it, yeah. it's a lot more about the teenage runaway scene. I recall that you left Las Vegas at, at 18, and I, I get the, the feeling that you were angry at, at the city itself almost, and it took you a, a a number of years to work this out and this was this novel part of working that out and in the runaways oh, was that yeah. part of working the, it out I think so I think you're right I think so um I think I was mad at myself I was mad at this the city um I was pre- pretty mad at the world and I think this writing this book was a way of working out all those things yes absolutely uh, there's not a lot of gambling in it because I didn't want to write a gambling novel. I didn't, that didn't strike me as particularly interesting, or um, it didn't compel me. It just it didn't it you know 
whereas the idea of a teen runaways, a missing child, what the parents go through, and then kind of the adult side of Las Vegas and the adult entertainment side of it, that that struck me as true. That struck me as things that mattered to me, that every day I woke up and I cared more about that than I cared about anything else on the earth, pretty except for probably my sister, you know, and my parents, and, uh, you know, and probably whoever, and my dog, and whoever I was dating. That was it. That was it. Did you, how did you research the teenage runaway aspect of this novel? Oh, I ran away. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, for years, even before I was writing this novel, I always stop and talk with uh, people on the street. And I just talked more. And I would you know, make any time I, I would buy supplies for teen runaways. And I would give them whatever money I had in my pocket, even though I had very little. I had more than they did. And I read police reports. And I read, um, and I just kept up on a certain amount of information and knowledge, and I immersed myself in that world. Uh, and then eventually I made sure at a certain point that I knew enough to not be appropriating any stories of any kids that were on the street because I wanted them all to be my creations. Although in the book there are names of people who actually did run away and were missing in Nevada, I did not tell, you know, I made sure that I'm not, you know, two rules I had, don't don't steal anyone's story and do not create a romantic view that will cause a troubled teenager to read this book and leave home because I did not want that. Those were the rules I had for myself. The other, you co- cover really well the other aspect of this is the, the from the parents' point of view. Uh, this book begins with a, a, some fleeting images of a, of a 12-year-old boy who, who's going to, who dis- has disappeared. But the, the world you create of Lincoln and Lorraine Ewing is, is absolutely fascinating. It's a beautiful picture of suburban America married couple uh, Built on the ephemera of, of Las Vegas, the most ephemeral aspects of Las Vegas in terms of both their jobs, and yet there's a real con- connection there. Oh, thank you, thank you. I, um, that means a lot to me that you would say that. Uh, they have to be the spine of the book. That family, it has to be the backbone. Um, and uh, I don't know what to say about them except that I wanted good parents good people, people doing the best they can, who had certain flaws, and these flaws had resulted in a disaster. Allison Smith has is a good friend of mine, and she wrote a memoir, Name All the Animals, and she has a beautiful, beautiful portrait of her parents. And I remember reading one of the chapters she wrote about their grief, and the way maybe her mother... Uh, avoided her grief or, or, you know, was in denial. And basically, you know, that that made a huge impression on me and other wonderful books made huge impressions. But I had this idea of two really decent people who have this horrible thing happen to them and who are doing the best they can. Um, so it means a lot to me that you would think that, you know, that there's that you were so affected uh, I hope other readers out there will also be affected by it. 
what well, it, it's interesting that as their son's disappearance, the time of their son's disappearance extends, they spiral off uh, away from one another and into some different pursuits. Uh, Lincoln becomes addicted to internet pornography. Yes, yes, he does. Um, and uh, that was a way of kind of doing a couple of different things because, you know, people deal with grief differently. I didn't want the typical guy out on the street raging, trying to find his kid, going nuts. I, I just, that didn't that didn't strike me as particularly interesting, and it didn't strike into the larger ideas, some of the larger ideas I had. Um, it, and there's another character who uh, Ponyboy's girlfriend eventually kind of Ponyboy pushes her towards trying out for porn, so this was a way of creating some overlaps. The adult side of Las Vegas is overwhelming. It is such a huge part of the city. Um, even people who willfully avoid it make have to, you know, do so, making you know, knowing that it's a p- big part of the city that they are working, that they are do- working their lives. I think in opposition to it's a big part of why people go to Las Vegas. It's part of the illicit thrill. It's part of, you know, the city itself markets the adult side. And that had to play into the book. And it and it seemed a natural, smart decision to get, to connect it with Lincoln's, how, you know, his reaction to his son's missing, his son's uh, uh, disappearance, that, that some of his emotions would go towards this dark world and this dark place. I have to say you're probably the only writer in, in the history of man who thus far who has been able to legitimately claim that you were just doing research. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, I, sure I was. Of course I was. Uh, Why? That's all it was, was research. That's right. One of the things <laughs> that interested me, uh, how did you how did you research the adult entertainment industry? I mean, they can't have been too happy to have some... Uh, probably angry, angry guy looking into their, their... <laughs> They're all angry. You know, everyone in the adult film industry is, all the guys in there carry not chips on their shoulders, they carry boulders on their shoulders. You know, they, they all have attitudes and they also love attention. And this was, I started writing this book before the porn explosion, before the internet porn explosion. Um, you know, I, I was so... And it wasn't that hard to call someone up and say, hey, I don't know if I'm ever going to get it published, but I'm kind of curious about this stuff. Can I hang out for a while and I'll buy you guys lunch and stuff? And someone did and let me. And, and I hung out, you know, for for not a long time, but long enough and to get the monotony and to, to get my own insights and my own feelings. I was never on a set. They wouldn't let me watch or try out. But I did end up knowing some people who would forward me tapes before they went on the market or as they went on the market, they would, like the way uh, radio stations maybe get galleys of books, I might get galleys of, you know, a film or an extra copy of films now and then. And that question of how do women get involved in this? You know, I mean, uh, porn for heterosexual men is just this monstrous in- industry, and it's built on the female body. And meanwhile, um, with some exceptions for huge contract 
for women who have huge contracts and maybe uh, the company started by like Jenna Jameson or Tara Patrick or a, a few, you know, there's some always some fledgling porn companies owned by females. It's usually sleazy guys and they make tons and tons of money and the women get paid better than the men, but the women are don't get paid commensurate with the fact that it's all, you know, it's all built on them. And you can't do this over and over and over two times a week, three times a week without part of your psyche shutting off. And I I saw that and I discovered that. And considering that people who get in this the adult industry are always going to be damaged people, that's, you know, that's his epic, epic saga. And uh, it's very interesting to me. And um, it also provides, it's also absurd in such a way that it provides you all kinds of opportunities for humor and for weird, you know, for epiphany. And um, it was hard writing all the scenes, the adult scenes. I went into some real deep, dark places. I have a dark, huge dark side anyways. And you know the appeal of, of 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 a, of the appeal that appeal. It, um, it has its appeal, and I'm natural to go towards it anyways. But um, I, you know, my hope was to create some art, something artful and moving, and that did honor to the women who had maybe been chewed up by this industry, um, and uh, not to present people as victims because but just that you can't know what you're getting into there. And I certainly didn't know what I was getting into when I started, um, when I realized that was part of my book and that I, if I was going to tackle it, I could not blink. I had to address it, you know, full guns on. Uh, on the other side of the equation, uh, Lorraine uh, becomes more and more obsessed and immerses herself more and more in the search for her missing child and the search right. for missing children and the world of missing children. As right. you did this, did, I mean, this must be pretty difficult emotionally, especially if you're trying to write a book to emotionally cure yourself. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't. I wouldn't recommend it, and I doc, doubt Dr. Phil would suggest this as a good method of therapy. Um it was tremendously difficult, and it was just heartbreaking. And there were times where I would just say, oh, my God, what am I doing? And at the same time, Lorraine's a great character. She's a funny woman in her own way. She, there's, some, there's always things that entertain me. And, it was, and I did feel, you know, this was absorbing. And more importantly, this subject matter meant so much to me, the idea you know, I was an unhappy 13-year-old. I could have easily disappeared forever. And the idea that there's, you know, that's a very young age, and I purposely made Newell even younger, 12 and a half, but that there's 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 19-year-olds who take off from college and just start wandering, and how easy it is to drop off the face of the earth. You know, it's a great subject. It, that's the subject for, you know, for big American books and it's also an intimate subject that's really that that just it just captured me you know it had me and it possessed me yeah 
this is a big American book, and I think it fits well within to the great American novel genre, if we can call it that. Oh, and, thank you. And one of the things I think that makes it that isn't just that you tell these stories of these 10 characters. It's the way in which it's written, and particularly the, the chronology of the novel and the way you introduce different characters. Uh, I have to talk about one of my favorite characters, slightly frustrating in a, in a, a bit for, for the uh, reviewer, Girl with Shaved Head. Oh, yeah. yeah, she's awesome. She's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, how can wrong. you mess with her? Yeah. <laughs> cosmically, yeah. You say it's cosmically wrong to introduce her by location, but you never give us her name. You can't. Well, the, uh, my, my brilliant editor, David Ebershoff, asked me, please name her. And, um, and there was a thought of maybe in the end paragraph when we finally what, find out what happens to her, to giving her a name. And um, and I wanted not to for a couple of different reasons. One is just, again, simple homage to Girl with the Curious Hair, the seminal David Foster Wallace short story collection. But more importantly, she is this... There's a certain universal, wonderful quality to her where she's almost superhuman. And naming her makes her human. And... She is, of course, a 15-, 16-year-old girl, and certain things happen to her that she does fly too close to the sun as the uh, uh, the flight of Icarus from the great Iron Maiden um, song reminds us that, you know, you fly too close and she falls. But I didn't, I couldn't um, do it. I couldn't name her. And I think that that adds a certain mystery and a certain ethereal quality to her that just makes me so happy. And, and I'm so glad you like her. Oh, she she's superb, and she is really a, a, a superhero in, in this book. Although, yes, she does fly a bit too close to the sun. Yeah. This the way I would describe this novel is: if you took every event in this novel and wrote it on a different card, then you took that stack of cards and laid them out chronologically from the first thing that right. happens in time to the last thing that happens in time. And then it seems like you take those, take the deck, split it in half, shuffle it, shuffle it again. But it's shuffled in such a way that the logic is no longer chronological. It's emotional. You're absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And there are chronological touchstones to keep everything moving forward and so a reader doesn't get lost, but it's more important to be emotionally moving forward with all of them. You're absolutely right. Yeah. How did you create this? I mean, it's very, very complicated. I, I mean, it seems to me that you did you like have a database, a spreadsheet, a, a giant flowchart, a Rube Goldberg machine? Uh, I wish I had a Rube Goldberg machine. That would have been cool. And I wish um, I, you know, a lot of it was trial and error. Each chapter, I kept a different, a, a separate file, and then I also kept an outline of each chapter and what was happening in each, you know, what was happening, just plot points and emotional points, and then I would, you know, I would bounce things, I would move things here and there, I would shift and shuffle, uh, and then you know, with new revisions, I would go through and and do it again and again. But as I would was working on the book, I was constantly consulting my you know, my chapter outlines and figuring it out. 
it evolves. I I would imagine that William Faulkner, that his uh, uh, complicated books evolved as well. Um, not that I'm comparing myself as an achievement, but that's just how it worked. Also, remember, in the mid-'90s, Pulp Fiction comes out. That's a tiered, weird structure. Uh, um, a number of books have tiered narratives. Um, and I think now, movie-wise, you know, lots and lots of narratives are tiered in the sense that uh, if you watch even a movie like Little Children, which is a very mainstream kind of release that's got three and four different characters and a couple of different time periods. So a sophisticated reader, I think, or, you know, or a sophisticated consumer of, of popular culture, it's not, um, you know, this isn't, this isn't uh, uh, something from planet Mars that you've never seen before. I think the amount of characters that I have and the fact that I have a, one narrative branch moving a year into the future and that there's so many threads running, breaking off and going in so many directions makes it, you know, something a little, something new just because of the heft and the scope and someone trying it at such a huge level. But, you know, uh, uh, you know I don't know where I'm going. Well, <laughs> Say something. Tell, <laughs> nine years doing this, no agent. None. No, no agent. Uh, were, who were you bouncing this off? Who was reading this? Was it just you? My, uh, for a little while, there were moments where it would appear, and I think I would have a draft, and I would ask some people to read it. At a certain point, though, it became me and my wife, the woman who is now my wife, Diana Colbert. She became my partner in crime and the first person I would show things to. And for a very long time, it was the two of us against the world. Um, and that has been a marvelous, marvelous thing to watch it from go from being our little crazy secret to being in the Sunday Times magazine and then on the cover of the New York Times book review. You know, that's just, it's just, it's almost holy in a certain way the the experience of going through this with the person that you love. Uh, it's just been wonderful. But yeah, for a long time, it was the two of us, you know, yeah, and our, my dog. <laughs> How did you get an agent? Um, well, I live in New York, and you know, and you kind of in the writing game. Uh, I go. There's different things. I went to some colonies were very nice to me, in that I would they would give me fellowships or give me a residency, and I would go and I would work on my book for a while and sublet my apartment and then live off the sublet money, and. Uh, so I would meet people, and maybe I might read a 10-minute stretch here or there or show them a couple pages. And people would say, yeah, you know, when you get done, maybe, I'll, you know, let me know. I'll let my agent know about this. And I just collected collected the names, and when it was done, you know, I contacted a bunch of agents, and some got back to me, and some liked it, and some didn't, and some didn't even get back to me. And eventually I... I went with a man named Jim Rutman at Sterling Lord who was the most excited and willing to work the most hard on it and who was also the most genuinely good person to work with and he kind of joined our merry troop of of insane people and he's done a great job he's just a marvel uh, this is your first book 
And I'm wondering, as you were writing this over this incredible stretch of time, did you were you tempted to just like break out and, and write a, a 200-page cheesy mystery or <laughs> science fiction novel or something? Uh, you know, I did some ghostwriting work and that I did for some for money, and at a little while, it cost me to to put the novel in a drawer, um, and then. But I was always like, God, I got to be working on my book. I have so much to do. The only way it's going to get done is if I do it. You know, no one can write it for me. And I was always, I was always pretty committed, an eye on the prize, and. Uh, um. So oddly enough, I mean, and there were times I would have loved to be in Harper's. I would have loved to write on Slate or on Nerve or all these places where all this cool stuff was appearing. But I didn't even, I wouldn't, the time it would have taken to try and do that, the idea of coming, I didn't have any other ideas. This was where all my creative energy and all my mental strength was being focused. And it just seemed like, you know, it's hard enough and it's taking so long while I'm working on it. How can I put it away? How's it ever going to get done if I put it away and start, you know, pitching uh, magazine articles? As have you? Do you have another idea? Yeah, yeah I do. <laughs> I surely do, and uh, I, and it's crazy too. It's crazy too. Uh, I can't. I'm afraid to talk about it because if I talk about it, it loses its magic. So my little joke is that uh, my next book is going to be about a guy who uh, jumps, tries to jump over a shark. Only uh, the twist is it's going to be narrated by an angel, and the angel used to be a dinosaur. So that's quite exciting. <laughs> and and may, maybe adaptable to a comic book to uh, inspire some other 13-year-old uh, child out there. You know, if someone from a... If someone from the comic book world invited me to try and write a comic, that would be a fun meeting. I can't imagine what that would be like, uh, but it might be pretty cool. Uh, I'm honestly, I would probably see if I could do it with one of my brothers, who is has the biggest comic book collection I've ever seen in my life, and I think it would be a dream come true for him. So, uh, but it would be that would be quite something to see what would happen if if that if that came to pass. I would be, I would be very curious, and I'd probably have a hell of a time doing it. One of the the themes of this novel, or, or something that I, I discovered in it, was this idea of images, and, and you have a, a really great um, uh, description somewhere where Lorraine thinks that uh, of of herself as, as a compilation of a series of stills. And that's what I was kind of talking about before as the characters are all very three-dimensional. But there's these kind of a lot of two-dimensional images and uh, the, the idea of imagery. There's, we have Sherry who's written writing the screenplay of her own life. That's right, in her head, yeah, yeah. Who's seeing things as a movie, um, who sees her life as a movie. Vegas is such a visual place that there, there's a certain logic to trying to strip it down and doing something Raymond Carver-esque, and I could see the logic of that. But my, you know, it's such a great visual place that uh, it also lent itself to this deep, deep, you know, very vivid, uh, image-driven world. And I, and that was you know, 
kind of fun to work on and fun to write because you get to write with some some bright language and it's true you know and hey it's vegas it's vegas i'm allowed to i'm allowed to put some gas you know to put some oomph into the into the sentences you know it's vegas as you were writing this prose did you find yourself rewriting the prose and, and going back and reading it aloud, or did this just pour off of your pen in this present state of perfection that we find it oh, in? Oh no, I rewrote. I rewrote this. Yeah, I just, you know, it was just so easy. It just all came out, <laughs> just like it is. I rewrite like heck, and I do read things out loud, and I try and read them for rhythmically to try and, if a word is off or whatever, I try and get rid of it. And uh, I listen to a lot of music when I write, which kind of creates some flowing, huge rhythms. And um, I'm just constantly, you know, constantly trying to get rid of words and bang things into shape. So hopefully that this, I love paragraphs that you read one and it starts and then the rhythms get a little longer and they get a little longer. And all of a sudden it's a riptide and you get to the end of it and you go, whoa, what was that? That was just awesome. And then here comes another one. And uh, the whole book isn't like that because you can't sustain that kind of pace. But every now and then it's really fun to, um, at the right moments, and to, to realize this is right. This is okay, and let's, let's let it fly. You know, let's let it roll. I can tell exactly where those moments are too. I, yeah, I re- remember the passages where you just go, "Oh my God, he's he's uh, he's pulling out all the big guns." Right, right. It, you know, there, you know, purple America. Whosoever knows the folds and complexities of his own mother's body, he shall never die. That that opening of of, of purple America uh, that Rick wrote, which is just, you open the book and you go, "Oh, dude, this is this is the." bleep 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 because it's just it's you know and yeah i rick can do it for a whole book i i can't i've had to learn to pick and choose some places where i could do it but it's there's mo you know there's a perfect time for a guitar solo there's a moment in the jane's addiction song three days and it starts slow and it builds and it builds and it builds and then there's the moment where Dave Navarro just blasts, and it's just ecstatic, and it's one of the great rock moments of all time. And I, you know, I tried to put some of, the, I tried to have those in the book. I, you know, I had a, as much in the first half of our interview as I talked about the pain and the, how hard it is, and you know, writing is so involving and so engrossing, and it can be so fun. And those moments where you find the right place and time to just let it fly, they're just, they, you know, there's just nothing like it in the world. And, uh, and I hope, I, I believe it makes, for a reader who loves language and who wants to go on a journey, I believe it makes something really cool and exciting. I think the structure of the book, for someone willing to go and go with it, makes something cool and like, yeah, this is just this is just awesome and and it's not John Grisham and or whatever but it's a new adventure and and why not you know why not so yeah yeah we've been speaking with Charles Bach his first novel is Beautiful Children thank you for joining me Charles this was wonderful thank you for having me (laughs) 
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.